We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. Whatever but more uncertain now. Uh, listen, Blue Ivy is six years old. Beyonce's baby. She tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton in today. Five, four. That's why you need to take a meeting with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello, and welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts... Yogi Paywall. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And so we've been doing research this month on uh, animal agriculture and factory farming and Cargill and Monsanto and glyphosate and Roundup Ready soybeans. Uh, and I started to become worried that uh, all the food in the United States was actually poison. <laughs> and I thought before I mouth off about any of this in public and expose myself to a food libel lawsuit, it might be worth talking to someone who is actually involved in the food production in the United States so that we can learn what is real and what what isn't, how food production actually works in the United States, and what the political implications of that are, and what some possible alternatives for the future might be. Uh, so our guest today is uh, Nate Hahn. He's uh, at turbo underscore fucker on Twitter. He is a longtime family farmer who has become involved in communal agriculture, uh, and he joins us today to hopefully talk us through a bit about what is real and what isn't in the food supply. Uh, Nate, thank you for being with us. And so I guess my first question for you is um, how much life your how much like your life is the video game Farming Simulator 2019? Like if I took three edibles, <laughs> would I accurately be able to experience what it is like being you for a day? Uh, maybe. I've never played it. Uh, <laughs> Spoken like a true farmer. Wait, uh, my question is: Do you use a combine, and is it really cool? No, I do not use a combine. I mostly uh, work with uh, forage and livestock, actually. Oh, okay. But I, like, I have uh, rode in a combine when I was real little. It's it's fun. It's cool. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I think it's only German farmers who, like, do their day jobs and then go play Farming Simulator after. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some, some people just can't get enough of it. Um, but I understand, Nate, that you are uh, your family has been involved in family farming. I was just wondering, how far back does your family farm go? And can you tell us a bit about the history of family farming in the United States? I mean, uh, I strongly suspect my family has been farming since the Bronze Age, pretty much continuously. Uh, farming in the United States is uh, it's, it's been interesting to see what see what's happened. Where do you want me to start out? Now, for you, is uh, farming in your family from your, your dad and mom's side? Did you go back both ways, or is it on one side? No, it's all along my uh, dad's side of the family. Gotcha. Uh, um, you know, from the research we've done, we've seen that uh, farming, uh, in terms of the larger corporations, has declined in this country in that it's more it's harder to be a profitable farmer today than ever before. How has it mm -hmm. been to watch uh, that degradation in front of your eyes over the last few decades? Uh, I mean, uh, 
have you ever had someone in your life that uh like had a drug addiction or a chronic disease yeah it's it's yeah. like that but everyone it's absolutely miserable fuck yeah that that <laughs> yeah. sounds about right man um before we recorded uh you were talking about how uh the farming industry is run by dinosaurs uh and uh they are batshit basically what has been your yeah. experience with that population i mean you can't you can't work with them they're you, like, you can't do business with them you can't reason with them you can't talk to them because i mean they fundamentally just don't care like because what they expect will happen is uh, they're going to farm whatever land they've got left into the ground. Their kids who are, you know, like in their 40s and 50s now, uh, they just think, oh, I'm going to give you this. You're going to get a big chunk of cash for it after I, you know, croak. And uh, then you'll have some money. Do whatever. Go go ham. Go wild. Right. Is it because they've just basically given up? that Because they're like, this is... It's a dead end, so I might as well do what I want to do and then give you money and then roll out because fundamentally the farming industry in itself is just fucked in this country. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, too, is just uh, this absolutely insane, like, way that, you know, a generation of Americans has, like, approached parenting. Like, these are people, like, that would rather sell their farm to someone their own age than give their children a farm because they don't think children should be given anything. They got to earn it. Right. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> I, yeah. So I do think it is interesting how, you know, the United States started out as a nation of farmers. And then only really recently we've seen this total destruction of uh, small farms with the farm crisis of the seventies and eighties. And uh, I wanted to talk about that, but before that I did just kind of want if you could maybe describe to us what a typical day on a farm is actually like, because it is just so fascinating to me that it is such recent history that people are so disconnected from the land. You know, I, I think only very recently people had much more understanding of what goes into the food process. And now we just have no idea the, uh, the majority of people in this country. I mean, uh, about 340 days out of the year, it's exactly the same as like anybody else's life. Like it, because uh, a properly running farm does not require constant input or maintenance. <laughs> like you just make sure that the, uh, you know, like whatever algorithm that you've built your farm around is continuing to move. And, you know, just a few times a year, like I cut hay uh, two, sometimes three times a year. Uh, you sell livestock every once in a while. It, it, Yeah, and it just happens. Those are hard days. Those are long days. But there's only a couple of them. What's the worst part of, of those days? Uh, you just, like, you just want to make sure that, like, everything that's critical is right. Like, because, uh, and also you just drop everything, uh, like, uh, last year I had a really good first cutting of hay. It was, oh, it was, it was beautiful because we had just this perfect week of no rain and, uh, the, all the forage was at the perfect like stage of seed development. It was still, it was almost fully developed when this week started, but it was still attached fully to the stock. It hadn't. So you have this perfect, uh, sorry, high protein, you know, forage, good leaf matter, good protein content, 
and it's resistant to the mechanical damage of cutting, raking, right. and bailing. Great year. Nice. And um, I understand that a lot of small farmers in the United States have been pushed into corn and soy just to like feed livestock. I was just just wondering what uh, crops you're, you have been involved in. I mean, uh, our farms have never been, well, actually, I take that back, but in, in the 40s and 50s, you know, we uh, used to run a more mixed rotation. Uh, so there was uh, corn incorporated into that, but that was mostly before my time. Uh, like, people often have this misconception of, like, uh, you know, corn-fed beef. Like, they, th- they think it's, like, always done on the feedlot, but those cattle actually live exactly like you're thinking idyllically in a pasture for the first three years of their life. They only go to the feedlot for what they call finishing, hmm. uh, where, where they are finished on corn and high quality forage. Gotcha. And, uh, eight out of 10 people actually do prefer eight out of 10 Americans prefer corn fed beef because it's more tender, more mild in flavor, has uh, better marbling. When you say foraging, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't familiar with that term. What do you mean exactly? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, forage is just anything, any crop that's intended for livestock consumption. Oh, okay. So you're, uh, you're growing it you're intentionally as part of your rotation, but it's for the livestock. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and I was wondering if you could introduce us to the farm crisis in this country and what it exactly has happened. Because, you know, I read all these horrible articles about uh suicides in small farming communities um i'm told there were instances in the 70s and 80s where farmers would actually murder bankers who went to foreclose on them that's pretty cool yeah (laughs) (laughs) look i'm i'm not technically allowed to endorse that but i'm not not (laughs) endorsing it Uh, (laughs) but you know like what what set off this crisis to the point where you have, you know, Cargill and uh, Monsanto and Tyson and just a couple others who have so dominated this industry that used to have a lot of, of small farmers in it kind of what was it like in this country before and after the, the farm crisis? Whew, OK, um, basically what made this farm crisis uh, different than like in the 30s? almost the same exact thing happened in as in the 80s and what's also happening now uh farm equity and farm debt is reaching comparable levels over the last four years uh but basically what really allowed it to become this kind of permanent you know society altering crisis uh were what was the advent of organic pesticides by companies like monsanto and dupont and so on in the 60s Hmm. uh because before then like uh, farms could be sold, but they couldn't grow. They could they could only be so big, like uh, oh, you know, a half or a quarter section, uh, eighty or one hundred and sixty acres, because uh, they were limited by how much a farmer could actually mechanically, you know, do like so many hours per day in these critical harvest and planting periods. So it could only be so big, uh, but. And they had pesticides before, like inorganic pesticides based off arsenic that were used in like uh, cash crops like fruit in California, cotton down south. But uh, these are very uh, hard to apply. They, they don't really they don't make sense for you know bulk crops like forage or grain. <laughs> but uh, organic pesticides they developed uh, in the 60s 
that technology was ultimately what enabled farmers in the 80s because they had there had to be that period because you know like nobody was nobody was selling out in the 60s and 70s but uh 1980 jimmy carter uh the kulak in chief (laughs) he uh he embargoes grain to the soviet union why why would you do that why it, they they produce more grain than the United States does? Why would you do that? But he does it, uh, and so that predicates an immediate spending frenzy. Uh, and then later, uh, over under Reagan, uh, most of the farm equipment manufacturing is shipped overseas, and uh, just the prices on machinery start going up and up and up and up. Uh, the seventies fuel crisis also plays into that too because. Right. Uh, before the organic pesticides were developed, you know, the main uh, way we had to control pests in crops was just mechanical methods of, you know, soil manipulation, like uh, tillage and cultivation. Uh, where So organic pesticides come on. It's easier, it's quicker to apply. You burn less fuel per year when you do it. And uh, now instead of being able to run 160 acres a year top, one farmer can easily manage up to around 2,000. Wow. Uh, in an area like here, like uh, in flatter areas, it's a much larger number. Sure. So it, it was the result then that prices dropped and, and that was what drove a lot of farmers out of the market? Uh, not so much prices, but costs. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like the, I think the price of uh, like a, any given equipment just uh, doubled or tripled between 1976 and 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in support of that, there was an art, uh, article in The Guardian by Chris McGreal called How America's Food Giants Swallowed the Family Farm, and just kind of an illustrative statistic here. In 1990, small and medium-sized farms accounted for nearly half of all agricultural production in the United States. Now it is less than a quarter. So, you know, this has been a real collapse in small and medium-sized family farms. And uh, the article mentions uh, the, the Soviet um, grain embargo, um, but uh, and it also point uh, causing land prices to collapse and foreclosures to escalate. Uh, it does also mention the rise of concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. Um, and these kind of industrial farming units, pigs, cows, and chickens are crammed by the thousands into rows of barns. Many units are semi-automated with feeding run by computer and the animals watched by video with periodic visits by workers who drive between several operations. And, uh, you know, I also watched this uh, documentary, Eating Animals, which kind of talked about how these CAFOs have had an impact in North Carolina, among other places, where you'll have these these big concentrations of pigs, and then they just all shit and piss on the floor, and then it's all washed out into these, uh, you know, giant pink lagoons that in turn are washed out into nearby lakes and uh, the land, and, you know, a lot of the fish die, and there's a lot of environmental impact of it. Um, I guess I was just wondering, like, living in farming America, have you seen this this type of impact near where you're at? I mean, what is the situation uh, for the environment of uh, these big uh, factory farms mer- moving into rural America? Uh, I don't smell good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is not a pleasant place to be. But really, like, the ultimate, like, impact outside of, like, the immediate, like, in you know, the cafe locality itself, uh, not not a question of morality, but just like how much, like how destructive it is. 
Not really. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lagoon full of weeds. It's not pretty, but it's, it, you know, it's not really hurting things in the way that, like, a coal mine's drainage is. Right. Tag on to what you said earlier about the rising costs during, like, the 70s. I think on, it was kind of like a two-pronged attack against farmers for a while because the Fed started hiking interest rates in 1980. It was, like, in, like, the 15% range for a farm loan. Yeah, that sucks. And uh, so, like, they're getting killed on price of machinery and um, material inputs to farming. And then on the other side, uh, adjustable rate mortgages were, like, in, like, the double digits. Like, it, it got um, it got bad enough that I was just looking it up again to remind myself. But the farmers started driving tractors in protest in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Uh, y'all, y'all like John uh, Cougar Mellencamp? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the people got real upset. <laughs> I would just love to see them like go down K Street and just like freak out lobbyists. So, uh, okay, after uh, about 1984, we see like a a new stability emerge. Uh, we're no longer talking about these 80 to 160 acre, you know, truly like family farms. Uh, we're seeing these 2,000 to 4,000 acre family farms. Right, right. <laughs> which, uh, you know, it's uh, an increasing level of financialization. These farmers, uh, like this this era of farming, you know, like it's very financialized. They begin to introduce uh, concepts that are very alien to the farming world and very familiar to uh, the financial world. Uh, like it's just a complete numbers game now. Uh, can you give an example? Uh, like they begin to introduce concepts like farm management. Uh, they start to come up with just like equations to like formalize exactly how the operation's running in a way that you know f- in former times was just like done entirely off of like the intuitive just like just force field inside like you know a farmer's head. Right, right. Like they figure out how to put everything onto paper. These guys figured out too that consistency is, uh, you know, it's the it's the number one value. Just a consistent return. It doesn't matter if it actually like is, uh, you know, good. Right. In the same way that like yeah, you see in farming like a very similar, like the the financialization of it has affected it in a way that's actually very familiar to the way that a lot of artistic industries are affected by financialization and capital more than it's really weird. I have, I have heard that the farmers of today are like many of them that who run the bigger farms anyway, are like steeped in like management science and like they are actually like very well versed financially and like they keep track of commodities, market, market prices, et cetera. Oh, it, and yeah, with the second farming crisis that started in 2010, uh, they've taken that approach to another like echelon. Uh, now these family farms are running 20,000 acres. Jeez. They're running 25,000, 30,000 acres. Uh, they're hiring middle management. It's bureaucratized. Uh, I get a job driving a tractor for 20 bucks an hour, I guess. Can I just say, Farming Simulator 2019 is way cooler. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, now which one's more uh, of an accurate depiction of farming? Farming Simulator 2019 or Farmville? <laughs> Farmville. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like the comparison you made to the arts where the math of making it has, you know, corporatized the uh, argument of quality versus quantity. Or, I mean, uh, yeah, quality versus quantity, where, you know, instead of uh, art or farm goods that are of a certain um, grade, it's more about just producing as much as possible and then figuring Absolutely. out what to use, what you make in the long run, which is, I mean, in from an art perspective, you now have, you know, an infinite amount more of networks and people willing to give you money to make stuff, but it's mostly trash because mm -hmm. nobody wants to pay for it and the way you view it is not one that is exciting you know watching a youtube video on your phone that's free is never going to compare to a movie made 70 years ago with a decent budget it just is just not comparable and it seems like with the farming community that making sure stuff keeps being pumped out I mean, it's like they're making Nikes at this point. Like, it's it's yeah. just sweatshop mentality. As absolutely, because uh, like farming has entirely in common with an artistic industry that, like, you know, like in, in music, you can like music theory is a very useful and powerful thing to know, but it only helps you if you can play music, if you can create a thing, and this the same applies to the relationship between ag science and farming. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. No, it is an interesting analogy that I hadn't thought about before just now, but that less Moonves expression, content is king, that has so destroyed the entertainment industry because all they think about is content, you know, doesn't matter if it's good or not, just slop. And then this has exactly the same been applied to our food supply and food ecosystem. Except the big difference uh, is that if people are producing slop content, uh, the world still continues to turn. Whereas <laughs> if the farms suck, uh, then we just die. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot I want to ask you about, but I, I do just like, because I follow your Twitter, I very much enjoy it. Um, I've been getting into ancient history as well. I just saw you had a tweet, I think a couple days ago, about how, you know, we get so obsessed now uh, about how much more natural ancient farming methods were but you pointed out that people would have just destroyed the soil. It just so happens they would all kill each other's in wars too often for that to happen. <laughs> it's not like it's not like our ancestors had, you know, organic farming all down pat. There were just a lot less of them. Um, but another historical thing that I find very interesting is that in World War II, throughout Europe, you actually saw a massive redistribution of wealth towards the farmers after war broke out because everybody in the cities of course depends on these farmers and they forget they exist but then suddenly a war breaks out you need food and if you happen to have some price priceless artwork you might actually go out to the farms and trade it because you will gladly get rid of it for some food so i just uh i, I was wondering if you could yeah i was wondering if you could kind of talk about uh community farming and uh because I understand it. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You have an icon of uh, Vladimir Lenin on Twitter. I understand you are a communist. And I was just wondering if you could kind of talk about the political implications of farming and what you uh, think going forward in the United States, the importance of communist or leftist movements being involved in farming is. I mean, uh, 
you know the, the revolutionary proletariat's got to eat. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's like, uh, especially from the Marxist-Leninist perspective, it's like there's an inherent like resistance within like most of that movement, uh, because like especially in this country, like the family farmer is the same as a pet, uh, you know, petit bourgeois. Uh, just right. a, a shithead that's just gumming up the gears, and that's that is exactly ninety nine percent of the people that I live with and work with, like <laughs> economically. All they want to do is just slow everything down. They they want to hold, 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 and you know they're 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 scared and fretful people, not not helpful. Yeah, maintain the status quo and and yeah. no no vision to to innovating what they're trying to do. It, it yeah. seems like you know the fear of of fucking up the the system really holds a lot of the older generation from you know trying yeah. <laughs> not even growing but just trying um and i'm sure that uh, if if things continue uh kids being born now may think that about our generation but at the same time it's one of those things where it's understandable that uh fear is so debilitating that it makes you hold on to what little you have. And in the case of farming, I think that, you know, the experience that you've shared where over the last few decades you've seen it, you know, just literally uh, belittle and whittle itself down to the husk it currently is. I mean, that same experience must have happened to the people before us. And so for them, it's like I, I've seen this thriving. And now that it is what it is, I'm going to, do whatever I can to maintain it because this ship is sinking. Right. Like, yeah, that's the way I see it is like, uh, I don't really fundamentally care. Like, oh, I'm on a state owned collective farm. Who gives a shit? I don't care. I, <laughs> right. I like, this is what I do. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, like how, how many people work at fucking McDonald's? It's, it's a way bigger number than people that, still live on family farms it's like it's not even close uh all we can do by trying to like fearfully preserve like what we think family farming is about all that's going to do is just make life harder for this mass of people that are suffering and it's and there's so many more of them that uh you know if they do that if if they get their way if there's a you know day of the rope every billionaire is just strewn about the street uh they're not going to be happy with us they're not going to be thankful yeah you know it's like i I literally just want to be on the right side of history well i don't know it is so fascinating to me because we're seeing everything we just described with the all these pressures on smaller farmers but if you're predicting, as I would imagine a lot of people are, that the political situation in the United States is going to get more unstable and, uh, you know, possibly even approach collapse or something like that. Well, uh, you, you seem to be in the right industry for um, survival in a, a post-federal government United States uh, or, you know, a, a United States with a high degree of political instability. So it is just interesting um, to me as a political project how important farming is oh yeah uh if shit got you know incredibly balkanized like that i would just i would just clam up and do subsistence agriculture with my buddies nice (laughs) yeah when you think about food security in like third world countries 
usually if they're if all this if there's sustained food inflation price inflation for like of like 10 percent or more for like a few months it usually means the government is overthrown <laughs> and so that uh probably won't happen here but you know it's it's been it's never been more likely because like their food food prices have gone up considerably for for the u.s anyway in the last year yeah uh, uh these fucking people man uh they think that, you know, the whole country is, you know, Biden stole this election and whatnot and so forth. Uh, they're not going to do anything because they're too busy running their small businesses. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they love it, dude. <laughs> I had a question. So um, with this uh, in this sort of more. Um, commune framework for food production like would it be kind of like a workers co-op sort of like the it's all worker owners is it that type of thing like if you if you had it uh if you were to like sort of write out the constitution for your new business yeah yeah that that would be like my immediate thing to do now on the ground with material that actually exists not like talking about something that could happen talking about what you know, is what I can work with. So mm. yeah, you just you do a, a coal cause, uh, you know, a collective farm. Okay. You know, like people often have like this mental idea in their head that like a Soviet collective farm, you know, everyone lives in this huge apartment block and you know, they wake up at the same time with a big whistle <laughs> and they all like march with their hose out to the field. No, it it isn't it can look like anything. Right. It can look just like uh, American farms, you know, like exactly what you're thinking, except they also coordinate sometimes as right. opposed to being competitors. I, would, uh, I imagine after you you gave us like the Soviet realist thing, you're like, I mean, I thought you were going to be like, and yeah, I mean, we do that, but it doesn't need to be that way. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that sounds pretty cool. Oh, it is. We, we, we do walk out in unison with hoes. <laughs> No, Nate runs more of an animal house uh, farm. That's that's his style. Yeah, we drink a lot of beer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nate's always hanging out and uh, smoking cigars with the pigs who are standing on two feet. That's animal farm, oh, Sean. That, that's an animal farm house. And uh, Nate uh, writes about his experiences. We'll link to his blog spot and his Substack. Um, I did just want to ask about this article you wrote that I found pretty interesting about the American collective. I'll just quote a, a paragraph that you wrote here. Uh, quote, at least until 2030, the majority of the energy and resources of any serious communist party in North America must be to diffuse the continent with material, tangible communist societies. Unlike the hippies and the Anabaptists, uh, linked it united in aggressive and an, an aggressive and expansionist manner. And you'd previously contrasted the hippies and the Anabaptists set up these communities, but they had no interest in expanding. They just wanted to do their own thing and cut out from society. The contrast is the communist uh, party model would be interested in expanding. 
these community farms. Um, you continue, quote, the online left is nothing but cope, which no lies detected. Uh, the count, the quote unquote counterculture has so far proven to large, de- to be a large degree unserious and unsuited to the task of forcing change. And the co- uh, communist and socialist parties that exist today here are tiny cliquish generations removed from the hope or, uh, or desire to power and consequently have long shed themselves of any notion that they should be hoping or desiring power. The task of the serious communist party is to build itself into existence in a fully formed manner. The communist party is the party of people that live in communes. And well, I feel attacked. <laughs> but that's a, that's a pretty powerful mission statement. And I do think as a lot of people do see these kind of electoral political projects uh, on the left run up against the rocks and not really accomplish anything, there may be more appeal to that. Uh, was, was there anything else uh, to that? That I mean, I guess, do you, do you see this idea of communal farming kind of catching on more in the left than it has been in recent years? I, I truly do. Because, uh, like, yeah, farming is just, like, it's an easy industry to get into and create, like, a totally complete, like, a place, you know, not just like a workplace or a can be like a, a neighborhood, but like it's it's completely like totally contained. Right. And so like, uh, you know, I'm saying this and maybe someone that's grown up comparably to me in Iowa will say, wait, I'm in that situation, too. I can do that. That would be my hope. And then you just you start forming just, you know, a network. And uh, once, you know, and once you reach like a tipping point of people that are doing this thing instead of the other thing, then we can just start to be preferential. We say, I'm going to deal with, you know, these people and not, not, not you. Right, right. And yeah. It is interesting to me just having been uh, in a one bedroom apartment in New York City in lockdown for a year. And I was just considering this morning, like, yeah, I would just go live on a community farm if I could have friends again. Yeah, dude. <laughs> if I could just hang out with people. Sure, I'll join your communist communal farm, you know. We had a lot of fun last year. <laughs> <laughs> just the complete opposite of everyone else's lockdown experience. Yeah, dude. Steven? We had bits, we had riffs, we had it all. <laughs> Mario Kart? Mario Kart. Is it Mario Kart? Oh, oh, okay. Well, my farm would be different. Oh, I, I just became a reactionary. <laughs> Damn it, shit. Do you see it being a problem for you guys if, like, okay, if you're... If you're... If you don't have control over the inputs that you're receiving, like, the the, the things you need to do your farming, the machines and whatnot... Could that become a problem later for your project? Uh, I'd go ahead and say that, you know, that kind of thing isn't really coming up on the radar. Because, uh, like, there's a shit ton of, like, agricultural machinery that's not in use. Uh, like, everyone... Like, everyone that has land and a bit, you know, a b- bullshit job making 20 bucks an hour, they just have a shit ton of just inscrutable machine crap that they bought right okay so like a, a lot of like the uh, just individual farmers just have a bunch of capacity that they just aren't using yeah most oh everyone like everyone i talk to you know it's like uh they would do more but they don't have labor they can't right. get help 
And it's like, well, that's there's a, there's a way that you can, you know, multiply labor. Yeah, right. Massively. Yeah. <laughs> you just don't like it. <laughs> does that does that go for like fertilizer and stuff too? Oh man, that shit's so cheap. I one of again like these uh, like these this petit bourgeois mentality is so insane because you'll hear so many excuses uh, for like why like these other farmers don't want to buy fertilizer, they'll make excuses. And it's like, you know, there's like, it's, it literally just makes you have more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It works every time and it never doesn't work. (laughs) You just don't want to do it. Okay. They just don't want to work. (laughs) You're saying they're lazy. Yeah. That's like the definition of short-sighted where it's just you spend a little bit of money to make a bunch in like, what, three months? And they're like, no, no. Hey, I know. What if you increase your cost by 0.1%? No, definitely not. (laughs) That's bizarre. Okay. Well, I mean, if you have, if you guys feel like, so, so there's like some independence as far as maintaining the inputs you guys need, like for the conceivable future. Yeah, it's. It's it's a there's nothing crazy gonna happen. So, you said a, a big turning point for you was like twenty it was the farming crisis of twenty ten, um, and that's kind of when you realized that the pre existing model wasn't really sustainable. Um, could you maybe like go into detail as to like what the crisis was and how that affected you personally? Yeah, uh, like. Uh, I mean, I was a child for most of the 2000s, and I spent most of that uh, with my dad just every day. It was wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, I'd ride with him in the tractor. I'd ride with him uh, in the truck. We'd go and eat lunch every you know day at the diner with a bunch of people that were just like my dad. Everyone, I, I didn't think there was a world that didn't farm. I sure. didn't know what anything else was. And... Uh, uh, 2008 was when it started for us, uh, specifically because we're heavily invested into uh, horses. And uh, George Bush did a little horse slaughter ban for the liberals. And so, uh, yeah, the value of a horse that sucks went from being $1,500 to $0. Uh, So we just started losing a lot of money really fast. And so he had to go uh, find work for the first time in 15 years. Uh, I watched his health rapidly deteriorate. Uh, uh, we just had to go without more and more and more, you know, just proletarianization, exactly what you'd expect. And I don't know, I guess like most of the people that grew up like me, they just, you know, the, the easiest answer was just to do reaction, but I'm built different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting and again, I'm an, I'm an outsider looking in, but it seems to me debt has been used to control small and medium-sized farmers to a similar way that debt has been used to control a lot of the U.S. population. Uh, you know, they load up on all this heavy debt, and then, you know, maybe some of the reluctance to spend any money is this illusion that you can pay down your debt if you just, like, cut all spending to the bone, um, and, and they're kind of trapped in this, this whole thing. I, w- I guess I was wondering if there were any specific things that that your family farm had to do to survive uh 
this this assault from the 2010s? Yeah, it wasn't especially like crazy, crazy for us. It was for a lot of people. Uh, but I mean, yeah, it's what we're still here. Uh, I mean, literally, they just my parents happened to have their assets in a good place when like uh, 2008 hit in 2010. Mm-hmm. But no, a lot of people absolutely are completely just destroyed by debt. Yeah, because again, like um, this documentary, Eating Animals, they interview a, a chicken farmer who's kind of been put into this whole um, what they call is the tournament system where these major corporations like Tyson, rather than just paying people for, you know, a set price for a chicken or a set price for a soybean or whatever, they'll set all the chicken farmers in an area on a tournament where Tyson will give you X inputs and then whoever, you know, grows the fattest chickens or the most surviving chickens gets a bonus. And then whoever is below that actually gets their wages docked. So every every chicken farmer in an area is competing against each other. Tyson makes it illegal for them to share any information. It's a way of, of pitting them all against each other. And then also they take on this debt because their startup cost to uh, produce chickens at the scale that Tyson requires is like, hey, you got to go half a million in debt to do this. And then if you're losing the tournament, you're, you're about to lose your shit because they're going to pay you nothing. Um, so I guess I was wondering if... Um, your family is still in, involved in in livestock, or if there's, uh, if the situation for like non-livestock crops is is different from that, or how accurate this documentary I saw is. No, uh, uh, with chicken specifically, because they're at this point, you know, the chicken production is incredibly industrialized and mechanized, and uh, you know, removed from its origins as a element of farming practice. Hmm. So. Yeah, it's the most advanced, but every every crop, every animal, it's it's trending that direction. Absolutely. Uh, like uh, just it used to be like I remember when I was real little, like there's a major feature of the landscape was various kinds of auctions and markets. Uh, that's where that's where pr- mm-hmm. produce was sold. Uh, you take beef, you know, your beef cattle to a livestock auction and the buyers are competing right. to get your animals up. Uh, uh, there used to be a lot of tobacco grown in this area, and a lot of small farms used to depend on, you know, like five or ten acres of tobacco because you can cut it down, put it in your barn, and just listen, you know, to the radio, watch the TV, see if tobacco starts to go up, mm-hmm. take it to the auction barn, and, you know, get some actual liquid cash, which was never a particularly common thing on family farms. So it seems like the diversification of crops was a lot better, uh, well, we would just say 20, 30 years ago, and slowly over time, based off of government restrictions, but also the corporatization of certain uh, cash crops, it's become that if you're a farmer, you can only rely on one or one to three, I guess, sources of revenue when it comes to farming, huh? Yeah, and like especially like these guys that are managing, you know, like more than five thousand acres. Right. Uh, like farming, from their point of view, is literally just driving a tractor as fast as fucking possible, <laughs> as many hours out of the day as possible, right. just blasting across the landscape. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, they don't want to think about like, oh, what should I do with this field? Right. Uh, what what mix of crops? What's what's the seasonality look like? They don't 
like they don't care about any of that element because they know they usually know one thing. They know corn and they uh, all they know is they want the fields to be more level than mm-hmm. they were last year and straighter and squarer and flatter so they can go faster. It almost reminds me of like I used to work at a local supermarket and then it got bought by a chain and it went from a place that like, I don't know, it kind of had quirks in how it was designed. And then once the chain bought it, it just became a fucking box. And you could like, I mean, I could physically feel the corporate reasoning behind every fucking detail. And it, you know, it's one of those things where like, I mean, it it seems kind of far-fetched, but like you can tell when you're in a place where people are like, this kind of looks good here versus yeah. like a computer told us this needs to be right fucking here. Like it's, it's, it's jarring. Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially cause like on machines, you know, that like I grew up using from, you know, the thirties to the fifties era, uh, like everything you do is done entirely as an artist works. You know, it's the f- things you feel with your hands. Right. Uh, Whereas nowadays, uh, you look inside like a modern uh, tractor with a planter hookup, you know, a seed drill, like a big fucking 36 row seed drill. He's got eight screens in there. Yep. And it's like, that shit doesn't fucking matter. You can just think, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, when you've designed things for convenience and maximum efficiency, you lose the ability to, you know, not wing it. But just human kind of, we can figure this the fuck out. Yeah. So do they also have like the farmer has like a Bloomberg terminal? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he can he can look up yeah he can look up um, commodity prices. Yeah, I'm and I'm sure a lot of the biggest guys literally do just have Bloomberg terminals. <laughs> <laughs> In the house. Yeah. Why not? There are a lot. Are the screens in the in the tractor just connected to like cameras or something in the back of the, or just is it more of like stats and things? Yeah, like uh, you might have in like a yeah tractor pulling a large planter. You know, it's tracking uh, the density, uh, the spacing, things like that. Uh, the the depth too, because uh, it's one of those things. Yeah, they're maximizing because like it real it you can literally prove it does affect uh like how how much yield you'll get like if uh the corn is planted like millimeters deeper or shallower but i mean that just you you shouldn't ever have to care right 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 (laughs) (laughs) you guys should uh check out the bloomberg terminal mod for stardew valley though it's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) yeah how does stardew valley stack up I don't know about these games, man. <laughs> I don't, I'm not good on the computer. That does just show you, like, we, we have an actual farmer here, and all we can ask him about is, so, like, the video games that we play to pretend that we do what you do, <laughs> what are those like? Tell us, really. Video games that were made by people like us. <laughs> yes. Uh, I did actually have a, a sim farm when I was a kid. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. I was I was never good at it. It was hard. <laughs> Unlike real farming, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Next week we're actually gonna have a city planner on and have all Sim City two thousand questions. <laughs> oh, that <would> be cool. <laughs> like, what are, your, what are your thoughts on Sim City three thousand unlimited? <laughs> They're like, 
I I just really never played any of those. <laughs> I did like uh I was going through your Twitter a bit, Nate, and I did like what you said about farming being an art. I know you've kind of talked about that a bit here. Uh, and how, you know, great farmers are more like great artists than these kind of uh, spreadsheet monsters that uh, the video games and the modern agricultural system would, would have us believe. Um, and there does seem to me to be like real satisfaction to creating food the way there is cr to creating any piece of art, um, if you'd want to talk about that for a minute. This is just, yeah, when you actually have a really good thing, uh, like you can see it and, you know, it's like you just have animals that are very happy and you have uh like uh the areas that of your the parts of your farm that aren't under cultivation they look healthier too there's you get more wild animals you get like uh you get wild animals that don't go to disturbed environments uh you get like if you have a wood lot uh you'll get like more and more characteristics of old growth forests that are very rare outside of a state forest. And, you know, it just, it just starts to really be, oh, it's be something. Uh, and also here in this region too, like you've really got to be careful because we have a lot of hills and we have just the ground, like the, the, the bedrock is Swiss cheese. It's, you know, this is cave country. So if you're not taking really good care of your soil, it will literally just leave right. and never come back. <laughs> And, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel good to watch, uh, you know, soil just leave, watch the, you know, channels form. And uh, I've actually seen it happen because there's a, a, one of the places I farm was our family's 80 acre farm we've had for about 100 years. It's split up now into basically two lots uh, the one I farm and one that an ant owns. Uh, and they rent it out to a completely conventional agriculturalist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen, like, I, you, I go onto the GIS data map and I look at it from 2018, about two years after they took stewardship of the land. And uh, I see on my side where we continued farming the same way that I always have. And uh, you can still, you can see ancient uh, plowways. There are, it hasn't been tilled in probably 60 years. The soil hasn't moved. Uh, mm -hmm. The hedgerows are still intact. You can still see these ancient plow marks uh, on her side, the conventional side. Uh, in about two years, you can see these huge flows of mud. Right. Uh, the soil's lighter. It's been completely demolished. And if I was to, you know, if there was ever a hypothetical situation where I buy that land and come back into it, it's going to take me 20 years to get it back up to the field that I'm farming to get them to compare to each other in productivity and yield. And just so the listeners know, you you farm in rural Indiana, is that correct? Yeah, the extremely southern part. Uh, I'm actually, from that farm, you can see the Ohio River. Nice. Nice. It's beautiful. What's the weather like out there right now, Nate? I'm freezing. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the winters are usually uh, extremely mild nowadays. They weren't 70 years ago, but, you know, sure. nothing we can do about it. Right. God. I did want to ask how the farm crisis ties into the, the larger crisis in rural America. I do have a quote from that Guardian article I quoted earlier. 
Uh, they talked about with the farm crisis of the 70s and 80s, as the medium-sized family farms retreated, the businesses they helped support disappeared, local seed and equipment suppliers shut up shop because corporations went straight to wholesalers or manufacturers, demand for local vets collapsed, all those businesses packed up and left, communities shrank, shops, restaurants, and doctors' surgeries closed, people found they had to drive for an hour or more for medical treatment, towns and counties began to share ambulances. And so, you know, we've seen this this whole crisis in rural America caused by a variety of different factors, such as private equity and the, the farm collapse. I did just want to ask you if you had any um, observations as to how things have changed in, in your part of uh, rural America throughout your lifetime. Oh, I mean, everything that you just described happened uh, from 2010, except, you know, cubed. <laughs> uh like there was one uh, practicing livestock vet in the region who was about a 45 minute drive from where we, from, from everyone basically. And uh, four years ago, he ex- exploded. He, he blew up. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and no one replaced him. Uh, Cause everyone that goes to vet school nowadays, you know, they just want to make a shit ton of money keeping like stupid corgis alive or whatever. <laughs> And uh, so, actually, one of the one of the guys that's uh, were you know working on this project with me is actually in vet school now, to you know be that guy on our collective. Nice. Yeah. You know, I was reading your uh, Substack, Nate, and uh, you know, from what I understand, most communists have a uh, big balls, but you seem to have a big dick as well. And I'm just curious, <laughs> where does your big dick energy come from, Nate? You seem to uh, have stuck on your own in terms of saying, uh, "Fuck the norm. I'm going to do what I want to do." Uh, it's family tradition. I don't know. Nice. Uh, yeah, like uh, my papa. Uh, is banned from Galveston or was banned from Galveston, Texas. Uh, they threw him out uh, in a in a literal mob with you know torches and pitchforks. <laughs> really? I he never told anyone why, but uh, <laughs> he could just never go back there. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. The original Twitter shit poster. <laughs> My brother lives in Galveston, so I'll let let him know that. All right. <laughs> Uh, I was wondering, I guess, your opinions on U.S. food supply in terms of health and in terms of all these pesticides and shit. I know, um, like I said at the the top of this episode, we started researching Monsanto and Cargill, and you kind of get freaked out about this stuff. And, you know, I had a, a guy who says he's a small farmer in Iowa actually hit me up on Twitter and be like, Hey man, we're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Could you not publicly talk shit about the U.S. food supply like that? You know, like we need people to buy our organic, you know, soy and our organic corn. Um, so I guess I was just wondering, you know, first of all, if you have opinions on how glyphosate and all these other pesticides have have changed farming, if if you personally um, have any hesitations about them or if you avoid them, and second, if uh, what your opinions are on the organic labeling process. Some people um, dislike it. Some people are just kind of trusting it. Um, uh, If you can explain to us about what goes into organic labeling and whether or not you think it's actually like a more healthy way to eat uh, for people who are interested in that in the United States. Yeah, I would say that if you uh, voluntarily choose to buy organic produce, you're throwing money away. 
like uh the biggest problems that i have with like the chemical agriculture are just this gross overuse and its contribution to this absolutely negligent attitude towards soil but they're not they're not evil uh you know they're just tools we have that we can use i would like to see them applied more judiciously as opposed to just being the entire basis of the you know the input output mechanism uh but like especially from the consumer's uh, standpoint like They've done multiple studies. Uh, you cannot taste the difference between organic produce and conventional produce. Uh, you, you just can't. Uh, uh, and as far as the health goes, like even if you forget to wash your cucumber, you're not going to be even the even as shitty as they do it now. You're just not exposing yourself to a concerning amount. Uh, like, I mean, the farmers definitely are being uh, exposed to a grotesque amount of these chemicals. But you're not. You're fine. <laughs> right. Because, like, when I mentioned, you know, Roundup Ready soybeans at the top, this was the big, the, the big Monsanto innovation. I think in 96, they came up with these soybeans that are immune to glyphosate, is also known as Roundup. So they can uh, spray this um, uh, pesticide... It is a pesticide, right? Or is it an herbicide? Pesticide is everything. Okay. Um, yeah, so they can spray this pesticide all over these soybeans and they're immune to it. And I believe the Roundup Ready soybeans are something like 80% of the, the global supply now. Um, and I guess some people, including myself, got a little freaked out because people have, of course, sued Monsanto and got billions of dollars. Uh, people got serious cancers because they were heavily involved in using glyphosate Um you know, as a weed killer, they got it all over themselves uh, while they were applying glyphosate. So um, it, it is just something where I guess people are nervous that that's being used at all. But I, I would say my understanding is your position is generally if you are not the one directly applying it, it's not really that uh, worrisome for human health. And even then, too, part of the reason that the app, you know, the applicators themselves I've actually absolutely I've seen what you're saying like uh, every like all the beef farmers they just lived longer than the corn farmers uh, they died of you know they would die of heart disease because they ate too many steaks right right <laughs> whereas the corn farmers were dying of like weird kidney cancers and you know they they all the corn farmers at the diner they always had like just liver spots everywhere you know the beef farmers had clear whatever they had normal skin for their ages but i think the main reason that happened is because they mark in the you know in the 60s when they came out they marketed these chemicals uh basically fraudulently to people that have no chemical safety background they're right. farmers they the chemicals are a new thing to them yeah and they were marketed as just this miracle shit you just throw it out there and it works. Uh, some of the earliest sprayers, you know, they did they had open cabs, uh, open control stations, so that you're just driving through a cloud of this shit. Right, right. <laughs> Jeez. You know, it's it's just fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you mentioned it a moment ago, where you you would like to see a more judicial use of this stuff, but it definitely seems as if it was marketed towards the farmers as like a magical solution. Yeah. to any any problem where the reality was like well it's not let's not just yeah. 
let's not give you kidney problems. That's how much you use it, you know? I mean, and you guys, I'm sure you know exactly well. Like, uh, if you have a product, do you want to sell more or less? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I want to sell more, dude. <laughs> we want to sell less. That's our that's our MO on this show. <laughs> right. We want to sell in, not out. Yeah. <laughs> but so my understanding then is you you overall you trust the US food supply. Are there any particular products or foods you avoid knowing what you know about what goes into it? I mean, not really. Okay. Yeah, even like it's not great, you know, like <laughs> It's mostly because, like, like what what's really truly like dangerous about like Roundup Ready soybeans is that they are ninety percent of the you know soybean supply, one genetic lineage, mm. and uh, his like that's you know historically when you do when you have like so much reliance on so few genetics, uh, you're just setting yourself up to get fucked. Mm. Like that's that was the Irish potato famine was one. You know, cultivar of potato cloned endlessly over the island. Virus gets in it, gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you can't expect the Irish to know how to do two types of potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nate. Potato is Sean's trigger word. He's got a. He's got oh a, yeah. He's got to yeah. <laughs> pray to the Celtic gods for about forty minutes now. <laughs> well, and, and all they had to do too is uh, if you just grow a potato to seed and you throw those seeds out into the field, they will come up as 60 entirely new, new to science, new to man potatoes. Every time you plant potato seeds, they're different. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, see, Sean, all you had to do is throw the husks into the fucking ground, and y'all would have been fine. <laughs> Wait, so isn't it like they grow potatoes by just, like, Cutting off, I'm I'm a moron, but they they like cut off a piece of the potato instead of growing it from seeds, and that's why it was so uh, homogeneous. Yeah, because I mean that's how commercial potato production works. Is uh, the you know the the breeders they grow seed potatoes, they find ones that work, they're that are good, right. bad, and then they market clones of those. Yo, what do you think about like McDonald's now controlling like most of the potato? Uh, science crop like from what I understand I don't know if that's most anymore what it is but like at what yeah. point do you feel like corporate interests in a food have taken over the farming corporate world because like I remember learning about that and just being like man if I made like I don't know spicy eggplant and I got so popular that everyone on the planet's eating it I then could control all the eggplant in the fucking world almost like it's just a crazy concept yeah wild fucking Irish McDonald's yeah <laughs> And, you know, especially, like, in Marxist-Leninist circles, like, you know, the, the natural, like, the default tendency is to always promote centralization and streamlining inefficiency. Uh, but this is a case where, like, redundancy is actually just a virtue. You want, like, you want farmers to be saving seeds. You want people to be thinking about relatively small amounts of land because it's incredibly complex. Sure. I like in these fields I work, I know where every rock is. I know every tree in them. I know every little, I know, I know exactly how bumpy each part is. Like it's, there's just a lot of shit to know. And so you can only scale that up so far before you have to start subtracting from right. your ability to observe. I want to ask about, um, the John Deere repair shit that's going on right now, if that affects you at all. But I guess I was going to ask about how you started your um, uh, collective farm. 
Oh, I just uh, kept posting on Twitter that people could come to my farm. <laughs> I actually kept demanding that people do it, screaming at them, telling them they were stupid to not come here. Take to a party. So posting. All right. It, it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the John Deere repair thing. No, I've, I've worked with much older generations of equipment with that for the most part. Yeah, so I'm just much. watching it. It's just, ah, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> is, the, is that whole thing affecting more of the large-scale uh, production yeah. farmers? That makes Wait, sense. Wait, hold on. Hold on. What's the John Deere repair thing? Because I'm out of loop on this. Uh, the John Deere repair thing is like uh, you buy a tractor or something from John Deere and if you're working on equipment that, like Nate does, if like a carburetor blows or something, you can fix it, and it's not that big a deal. But with John Deere, similar to Apple and other corporations, if one thing breaks and you try and fix it, John Deere's like, whoa, 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 what the fuck, bro? You got to give me money for that shit. And it's not for, uh, from what I understand, repairs. They just want you to buy more equipment because, like Nate has explained here, the large-scale farmers can't necessarily afford another equipment but john deere knows that if they don't they're fucked so they've mm. just put them uh, a gun to their head and been like well i know you're i mean i'm just posting a, uh i'm just i'm just saying a hypothetical here but like oh your tractor has a flat well you need to buy a new tractor is basically what they're doing <laughs> wow I mean, I have to say, though, that uh, as far as business goes, uh, having the John Deere repair guy be a dick, in, you know, a dick in your ass, uh, it's a good problem to have. That means your business is doing fine. You've got new equipment. Yep. You're probably having very little downtime. Yeah. It's just business makes you think about business not correctly. Yep. Do, do, um, do you guys have trouble, like, with Monsanto ever? yourselves no i mean uh yeah monsanto gets singled out like for some reason it captured the public imagination as the evil chem company but all these companies do kind of the same thing and unless you're like again it's really a problem for these large guys at this point they don't work they don't work with the small guys that are still out there they right. don't care okay mm. i do remember that like there's some court case about um farmers were saving like the genetically modified Monsanto seeds, like the ones that they don't use, and then like uh, cultivating it just for their own purposes. And they Monsanto won a case that said like that was copyright infringement. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that yeah, genetic copyrights are going to be a widespread issue in agriculture, medicine, and many kinds of industry, like in the in the in the future. You know, okay. uh, base and shit. They're gonna have. A <laughs> oh, that's gonna be totally fucked over. I'm. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm not going to visit. <laughs> uh, that that's going to be like a a military dictatorship on Mars. I mean, the most of the farming there is going to be soil green. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, don't get into any of those uh, Musk self-driving Mars rovers because they'll actually <laughs> crash right into a semi truck. <laughs> okay so but the seed thing is that's mainly just like the bigger the, the mega farms dealing with them that might have problems yeah the people growing you know these like 
you know, there's like a trading card game or whatever where they come out with like the new generation and then all of a sudden the old ones are completely worthless now. Right. Mm. Uh, so like you could just grow older varieties of corn uh, and just grow them. It's just not okay. fashionable. It's just like the old model, you know, and you want yeah. you want the current, okay. the 2021 yeah. generation. Man, yeah, you know, man, fuck everything. This is like, like, <laughs> what a fucking stupid world we live in where it's like, well, you ain't got the 2021 corn. You, you're rocking the 2015 model. Yeah. What the fuck is wrong with the goddamn planet, man? This, this sucks. That's pretty fucked, though, in another dimension that, uh, of the problem that, um, plant corn obsolescence. Have- yeah, I'm into 80s retro corn. <laughs> And yeah, the difference between a 30-year-old hybrid and a modern one is going to be like 0.05% more yield in uh, well-drained loam. Sure. (laughs) That's pretty messed up, though, that the seeds, like the biodiversity, basically, of the the food chain is being significantly reduced because people all have to have the latest uh, whatever lineage of the seed. Yeah. I mean, that could, like, that affects more than just, like, farmers who are angry that they couldn't get their hands on it yeah yeah no that's probably that's the real source of like immediate uh instability and insecurity in the food supply more than almost anything else sure yeah i'm more into the vintage retro crops i like my Brussels sprouts (laughs) to be you know a little bit more bitter than these new crops you know I'm not a fan of the new corn i like mine to be a, a, a range of colors and occasionally taste kind of weird Oh, there's some incredible heirloom crops out there. Fascinating attributes. Like, you can read about these, like, they found varieties of corn that'll do just anything, anywhere. Like, they found one in Mexico. I don't know if you guys have read of this, but it actually can fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And it works completely differently to the way that, like, uh, uh, clovers and, you know, legumes do. Right, right. Uh, it, it has like this weird goop on its roots that's like a fungal uh, like symbiont. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's oh. wild. I, I learned recently that corn isn't naturally occurring, that it was invented by the native peoples of America uh, over centuries, which is uh, wild. I, it's genius. I love it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked what those GMO soybeans were doing before they sold out and signed with Monsanto. <laughs> much more much more independent flavor back then i mean it does go to show you what an incredible just again like lack of art that's being applied to farming is like uh when they were developing the techniques of genetic modification they were thinking about you know increasing nutrient values increasing yields growing crops in marginal areas increasing diversity and so far the main thing they've really accomplished is just making corn that doesn't die when you spray it with poison <laughs> it like it really i mean i love the art comparison because it really reminds me of like auto-tune and the ele- electronic boom in the 80s for music where like theoretically it allows you to make music without having music knowledge or even talent but in reality all it does is it makes pop music all sound the same or with corn taste, all this. Like, it's like, instead of innovating, and really goes back to what we're talking about with the older generation, instead of making things better for tomorrow, it's just maintaining the status quo of today. Yeah. Uh, I just had two last questions for you, Nate. All right. 
Well, first of all, I was looking at your Twitter, and I was just wondering, um, with <laughs> no further setup, could you tell us what are Nazi cattle? Uh, yeah, the Nazis uh, had a program to bre- uh, breed, to recreate the extinct uh, wild cattle of Europe, the Aurochs. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so these two brothers, the, the Heck brothers, were tasked with it, and they created a breed of cattle that are just really good at murder. And don't like to be around people at all. <laughs> and they would use them like in parades and shit to like show off the might of Aryan in a, yeah. coolness. <laughs> it's extremely fucking stupid. Wait, would they like gore kids on the side of the parade? Probably. <laughs> so at some point, was Hitler receiving like a briefing of like the updates on the like murder? did Nazi murder cow program. I I don't know if this would have ever gotten to such a high desk, but I hope it did. <laughs> I hope he had to think about this <laughs> and convince himself that it wasn't the dumbest idea anyone's ever <laughs> But were you saying that these went extinct and I guess some neo-Nazis are trying to bring them back? Is that true? Yeah, dipshits keep per- perpetuating these cattle you know, generations after their need to uh, bolster the Nazi regime have it's it's not not relevant anymore. Because uh, yeah, the Aurochs were dr- driven out of Europe because they were replaced by good domestic cattle that are better. <laughs> I just I don't know. I love the idea of neo Nazis trying to recruit by uh, recreating murder cows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems like seems like the Nazi problem in some at least in in agriculture is kind of self-regulating if the cows are constantly killing their owners. <laughs> I don't understand why these socialist cooperatives are growing so much faster than ours. <laughs> With our, our cows yeah. kill somebody every week over here. It weeds out the weak people. <laughs> Should just subtly encourage them to go no no, keep keep at it. You know, you almost have the aurochs. Got this. <laughs> Start donating. Uh, Maybe they do serve a purpose after all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Nate, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for explaining all these concepts to us and uh, educating us. Uh, And my final question for you is, uh, where can people find you? Where can they contact you? And uh, what can people do if they want to inquire about or support your communal farming or communal farming more generally? Uh, I'm you know, on Twitter at turbo underscore fucker. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you link said you linked my articles. Uh, that's pretty much about as much as going on, honestly. Uh, I've never really come across any like uh, co- collective farming organizations that you know you know meet my you know get my seal of approval. They're not up to it. Not ready for action. What do they do that suck? They they just not represent themselves, or they're more uh, they more cultish than communist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the most successful uh, you know communes of the '60s is a, a farm called Eastwind in Missouri. Uh, Supposedly, they make a very popular organic nut butter. And I don't know. I'm sure it's nice. I'm sure it's a nice place. I'm sure they're happy together. Cool. 
Well, do keep us updated because I do think it's it's a very fascinating idea is these different communal farms, but there would be, I guess, a central communist party around all of them. Yes. Um, and that's kind of the goal and what we're building towards. And do you have any predictions or imaginations for what an idealized future might look like in the United States? Or do you not think we're headed towards an idealized future? Uh, I, I have an idea I'd like to see what, a, you know, just I can imagine like just a billion Americans living just along the Mississippi River and the Ohio River and these basins and just being, you know, in a place that's like full of people and full of life, steamboats and airships. That'd be cool. Why not? <laughs> nice. I'm with you. Yeah, I can see it. People just in the river, just slapping catfish. <laughs> no, steampunk with Is catfish. Is that a metaphor for sex? What? Oh, uh, is that a euphemism for sex or? <laughs> no, I mean, just literally just stunning a fish dead. Beating <laughs> uh, it. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think I think steampunk with catfish is a pretty good recruiting pitch. I think we're going to get yeah. a lot of people in on this. All right. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> well, thank you again, our guest Nate, for joining us. You can check him out, as you mentioned, on Twitter, turbo underscore fucker. And uh, we'll, we'll be checking back with him and uh, wishing him lots of luck with this communal farming project. Uh, thank you for listening to Grubstakers. We'll see you soon. I'm Sean B. McCarthy. I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Andy Palmer. Have a good night. Goodbye, everybody. Remember to practice safe catfish <laughs> flapping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't tell me about Farming Simulator 2020, okay? 2019 was when they perfected the formula. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>